Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. St. Patrick is one of the most courageous missionaries of Christian history. Although revelers mark his day with debauchery and drunkenness, he pursued holiness and risked his life to preach to the Irish barbarians. He held out to the ancient Irish tribes a promise of protection from their gods and demons, if only they would come to Christ. Not only is he an example of virtue and courage, he also shows how far forgiving and loving our enemies can go. After patiently waiting for years for his non-missionary-minded church to send him, he got to preach to the very people who had kidnapped and enslaved him as a teenager. Learn who the real St. Patrick was and how his life can inspire you to live for Christ in our post-Christian society today. I think St. Patrick is one of the most misunderstood people in all of Christian history. I want to begin in the year 400. 1,600 years ago, Ireland was populated with a savage group of tribal warriors, completely uncivilized. When the Roman soldiers conquered Britannia, they got to the the western coast and they glanced over at my ancient ancestors and they saw them standing there naked and with their weapons and howling and carrying on. And, And the Roman soldiers said, eh, Forget it. And they never even bothered to try to even conquer Ireland. They were just too poor over there. there was, it was going to cost too much money to conquer them. There wasn't enough benefit. I mean, this is like the Roman Empire. They conquered everything they could. And uh, they didn't even try to conquer the Irish. And that's because it really was a savage society. There was a lot of drunkenness at the time. And the Irish had two great fears. Number one, they feared the Irish. And number two, they feared the gods. The Irish uh, were warriors. I thought I would show you a picture of this, but then I changed my mind. But they fought, they fought naked, although they did wear sandals. And a golden collar around their neck. And they carried shields and swords. And it was customary to, when they psyched themselves up, to, to sort of get possessed. They called it the warp spasm. And they would cry out and they would howl. And when people encountered them in battle, they were just freaked out by these bunch of naked men running at them with swords howling and screaming and carrying on. And that's how they fought battle. The story's going to get better, but I, I just I, I want to set the scene. This is the year 400. Ireland is not a big place, but it had hundreds of local kings. And the way you should think about it is, you don't have any cities, but you have longhouses, and that's where the the chieftain lives. And the modern equivalent, I think, most similar to it is like gangsters with turf. You know, and if you have a gang and your turf, that's the boundaries, but it's not really a fixed boundary. There's no wall built there. But if somebody comes on it, your people mess with them, right? 
And that's, that's more what the Irish were like at this time. All these hundreds of local kings, local strongmen that are ruling over just a few dozen extended families. Uh, there are no police. There are no rights. There are no juries. Life is cheap, and might makes right. If your tribe can conquer another tribe, then you do it. And if somebody kills somebody in another tribe, you go to war. And they're always going to war. There's no security. You're always worried about who's going to come and, and take over. And they were terrified of the gods as well. The gods they worshipped were these terrifying, ugly idols. They were man-eating gods. They were shapeshifters. They were not... I don't know if you ever studied ancient religions, but typically the gods are not your friends. The gods are these powerful superhuman beings that mess with you if you don't take care of them properly by giving them the proper sacrifice done in the proper way by the proper qualified person. In this case, the Druids, the Druidic priests, would make sure the gods were satisfied. I have a quote here from Thomas Cahill. He writes, They sacrificed prisoners of war to the war gods and newborns to the harvest gods. Just think about a society that, where that's normal, where you, you, you capture another Irish tribe and... You sacrifice the people in a religious ceremony. Or every year when it comes time for harvest, you grab a couple of babies and sacrifice them to the gods. Believing that the human head was the seat of the soul, they displayed proudly the heads of their enemies in their temples and on their palisades. They even hung them from their belts as ornaments, used them as footballs in victory celebrations, and were fond of employing skull tops as ceremonial drinking bowls. I said they were savage, right? I'm not, I'm not exaggerating here. I mean, this is savage. Life is cheap. The head is going to be displayed or played with like a football. The Irish took it upon themselves to raid not only each other, but also the people living in Britain. So they come over in boats... And around the year 400, they uh, came upon the village of a young man named Patrick, who it turns out was British. And Patrick was well off. Britain had been part of the Roman Empire, so it was civilized. And they did have Latin learning and education, and they had law and government and different positions. And so Patrick was well off. He was a 16-year-old, pretty much an unbeliever. In his own words, he, you know, he, he had grown up in the church, but he didn't really believe in it. And the Irish came one day to his village, and they came to his his homestead, and they killed a bunch of people. And uh, in their in their savage manner, they scared everyone and, and killed a bunch of people, and then kidnapped a lot of people and took them on their boats uh, as slaves back to Ireland. And Patrick, at 16 years old, was kidnapped and enslaved by the Irish, and he was brought to live on the property of a local king who had him serve him as a shepherd. So Patrick served as a shepherd. I mean, just imagine how traumatizing this would be to be 16 years old and to be in a foreign land with a foreign language, with a foreign religion, 
And as a shepherd, that's a very difficult job because especially in a place like Ireland where you have all this precipitation all the time, right? And he talks about how hard it was in the rain, in the snow, in the ice. And this 16-year-old boy who had lost everything, the whole world had, had suddenly been pulled out from underneath his feet, suddenly decided he should call out to God whom he had never prayed to really before, never really believed in. And his, his little tiny faith, that little mustard seed of faith, started to grow a little bit. It started to grow. And so we started to pray. And time passed. The seasons changed. And he decided that he would, he would become a prayer, what we would call a prayer warrior. He says in his own words that he prayed over a hundred times every day. Now, when you're, when you're a shepherd, you've got time on your hands, right? I mean, you take care of the sheep, but then there's a lot of downtime as well. And he says he prayed a hundred times at night as well, after the sun went down. And uh, he prayed and he prayed, and a year passed, and he was still a slave in a foreign land. And then another year passed, and he still prayed a hundred times a day, petitioning God like that uh, woman in the parable Jesus tells that just won't let it go. <laughs> and then another year passed. And another. Finally, six years pass. Six years. He serves as a slave to this local strongman. Just imagine that perseverance. I calculated it. It's hundreds of thousands of prayers. Hundreds of thousands of prayers later. He gets his first little bit from God. Just a little bit. And God says to him, in a dream, you have fasted well, very soon you will return to your native country. Six years! Now, if you or I pray for a month and we don't see a result, what do we do? God doesn't care about me. God doesn't listen to me. You start questioning your faith in God, right? Six years, he prays hundreds of times every day. And his faith grows, and God gives him this vision. And then a short while later, he hears, look, your ship is ready. Your ship, he's not anywhere near the coast. He's, and so he, he decides that he's supposed to start walking, Okay? Now, being a runaway slave, as in America, in Ireland, in the 400s, is extremely dangerous. Extremely dangerous. If anybody catches you, you're either dead or brought back and then in big trouble, right? And so he's got to sneak off, and he starts walking. And he walks and walks for days. He walks for 200 miles until he finally gets to the coast. And when he gets to the coast, there's a boat there. He can't, he can't believe it. There's a boat right there, ready for him. So he goes up to the boat, and we have these things from his, his own words. The, uh, he asked for permission to come, come aboard. It's a, a boat selling Irish dogs. So they, they rounded up a bunch of Irish dogs. They're going to ship them over to the continent and then sell them over there. And so he says to the captain, can I come aboard? The captain says, don't you dare try to come with us and turn him away. Patrick turns away, starts walking away, 
towards the hut where he's going to spend the night if he can't find the boat. And you know what he does in that moment? He prays. He's walking away and he just starts praying. Why does he pray? Because of habit. He's been praying a hundred times a day anyhow, right? So now he's in trouble. He doesn't forsake God. He doesn't say, oh, I just made up this vision. I, I made up this... You know, he just prays. He said, and we don't know what he said to God. But while he was in the midst of his praying, all in the same scene here, somebody calls out to him from the boat and he says, come quickly, those men are calling you. He turned back and they tell him he can come. And he gets on the boat. He spends three days at sea, and he finally gets to land. And it's, it's this weird, something had happened to the people in the land he, he, where his boat finally lands. The, the, the people are gone. And so he's, he's walking on land with these Irish traders, and they have their dogs. And they're walking for day after day after day. They walk for 28 days. They never see another human being. They can't find any food. And they're all, they've all ran out of their own food. They've, they've run out of it a long time ago, and they're, they're, they say the dogs are half dead, and I'm sure they're probably looking at those dogs thinking, I wonder, wonder if they're going to taste any good after all this time. Uh, <clears throat> But no, they don't eat the dogs. But uh, what they do is they turn to Patrick, who has been talking about how he's a Christian. And, they, and the captain says, what about this, Christian? You tell us that your God is great and all-powerful. Why can't you pray for us since we're in a bad state with hunger? There's no sign of us finding a human being anywhere. So Patrick says the following, Turn in faith with all your hearts to the Lord my God, because nothing is impossible for Him so that he may put food in your way, even enough to make you fully satisfied. He has abundance everywhere. Where does faith like that come from? I mean, you finally get off Ireland, and now you're sort of stuck with these people that obviously don't know what they're doing. 28 days, haven't seen another human being, you're walking through this wilderness, and now they're blaming you for being the Christian. <laughs> And so Patrick prays, and in that moment, a whole herd of pigs, wild boar, runs at them. They literally run at them. And so they kill the, uh, the animals, and, they're, they, and they feast for two days on these animals, right, pork chops. And uh, then they continue on their way. Through a series of events, we're not really sure exactly what happened. He eventually, finally gets home. It takes a few years. But he finally gets home back to Britain. And he finally returns to his parents. Can you imagine that being a parent, losing your 16-year-old? Six years later, he comes home, he's 22. Now he's got a different look in his eye. He has faith in God. He's been through horrible trauma and difficulty. And they say to him, Patrick, we're so glad you're home. Don't you ever leave us again. You stay here with us. And you could just imagine how they probably spoiled him after that, right? <laughs> Gave him everything they, that he wanted. So some time passed, and then Patrick has this strange vision. He has this strange vision where uh, it's like a weird dream, and, it, and in it, he hears this voice that says, we beg you. Holy boy, 
to come and walk again among us. And so he concludes that this must be the Irish calling him to come back. You know, but they had taken everything from him. Six years, plus all the years it took to get back home from this knucklehead loser shipmates that he ended up with, right? And so, what did he do? He forgave. He forgave the Irish. He forgave them for what they did to him, for the people they killed, for what they put him through. You know, Jesus says that if we don't forgive others, God won't forgive us. Did you know that? Yeah, it's not like, well, maybe I'll do it if I get around to it, you know? So Patrick forgave these people. He really did. Just think about that. I mean, what would our modern parallel to this be? You're traveling around on some Bible lands tour, and ISIS kidnaps you, makes you cook for him for six years, makes fun of you the whole time, and suddenly you escape. And now God says to you, I want you to go back to these same people as a missionary. What would you think? <laughs> I just got away from those people. <laughs> they're not going to listen to me. In fact, I'm a runaway slave. If they find me, they're going to kill me. Right? And so that's what people are telling Patrick. They're saying to him, why does he put himself in danger among hostile people who do not know God? But you know, he knew something about God. Let's look at 1 Timothy 2. He knew something about God. 1 Timothy 2.3 is a verse that I think really speaks to this. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires what? All men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That word all there means everybody. I have another verse here I want to show you, 2 Peter 3.9 up on the screen here. It says, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So this is the desire of God's heart, is that, like in the verse we just read in Timothy, all men would be saved. Right? And men means men and women there. It's anthropos, it's, it's a, you know, people that all people would be saved. And here it says, He doesn't want any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's God's desire. Most people don't ever get that. Most of us think it's people like us. Or it's people you know, that you can relate to that God wants. No, God wants everyone to be saved. Even the people that you would say are not worth saving, or that I would say, these people hate God. Why do you want to save them? He wants them too. You know, I think the early church, when the Apostle Paul, before he became a Christian, he was going around persecuting everyone, right? I think the early church probably looked at this Saul of Tarsus and said, maybe they, maybe they prayed and, and said things like, God, please, please make him fall. Please take him down, right? Maybe they said prayers like that. We don't, we don't know. But what God does, he sees, he sees Saul running around from church to church, arresting everyone in his zeal. God looks down and says, I could use somebody like that. Somebody like that with, with real gusto. You know, somebody that's not afraid to speak to, to rulers and to stand before people. And 
you know, if you knock him around a little bit and whip him in the back, he gets back up and he keeps going. I could use somebody like that on my team. He sends Jesus to show up to Paul, doesn't he? Right? So God has a whole different perspective than you or me. Right? Even people that are, that are, that are we would say, are evil, God... He still wants them to turn. He still wants them to repent. He still wants them to have purpose for their lives. It doesn't mean what they did is, you know, didn't happen or is, it, there's no consequences. Of course, there's consequences. All right, turn to Acts 1.8 for me, would you? Uh, I want to read a verse there. So what does Patrick do? He hears this call and he says, I, you know, I really believe in the, in the depths of my heart that God's calling me to be a missionary to the Irish, to these savage, drunken, idol-worshipping, pagan, naked warriors who hate my guts. I think, I think God wants me to go preach Jesus to them, right? And so he has no training. He lost out six years of his classical education. His Latin is not very good. And so he goes to a monastery on the continent to a place in Gaul, which would be modern-day France, and he, he goes to seminary, and he, and, he, and he does some training there. And I think he's the kind of student that uh, the teachers, you know, after he's, ha- he's hung around for a long time and sort of not really done all that well, the teachers are like, all right, we're just going to graduate you anyhow, Patrick. Okay. <laughs> and so he ends up uh, ordained as a deacon. He-, he ends up ordained as a deacon, which is a very low role in the structure of the church at the, at the time in the 400s. Uh, um, you know, he- he- you really want to be a little higher. You want to be at the level of a priest or a bishop. Because then you'd have more authority when you go over there. But he, he ends up as a deacon and he comes back home to Britain. And uh, he seeks from the church leadership a, approval to go be a missionary to the Irish. And you know what the church leadership says? You're crazy. This is the dumbest idea we have ever heard. Right? Youthful zeal. You know, a kid thinks he's going to take on the world. <laughs> Right? And so they say, why don't you stay here? Why don't you continue your training until you're ordained a priest and then work locally here? Work locally. You know, the people here need you, Patrick. The people here need you. And so he stays there. Another year passes. Can I go to Ireland? No. Another year passes. Can I go to Ireland? No. Finally, we get up to six years pass. Now, he was a slave for six years, and now he's been trying to go to Ireland for six years. And they say to him, no, you're not going. We do not bless you to go. This is, will you stop asking us? And he keeps it in his heart. He bides his time. He eventually works his way up to be a presbyter, which is a, a higher rank. And after 25 years... He says to them, can I go to Ireland? At 47 years old, can I go to Ireland? And they said, just go. <laughs> they ordain him a bishop, which in their church structure means that now he can make his own, his own leaders when he gets there. He doesn't have to send them back, right? Just go, man. Go. Go. At 47 years old, he begins his missionary journey. Don't tell me that everything has to be done a certain way. You know what I mean? 
Sometimes God might have us wait on something. I mean, you know this guy's praying, right? He's praying a hundred times a day before. This is before he really got into to God on a higher level with all, all this other stuff. He might have been praying 200 times a day. God probably got so sick of him. Just go to Ireland, man. Just go. Go, go preach to ISIS. Go. And so he goes over. So this is the thing that, that he, never, he never missed. This is what Jesus said, Matthew 28, 18. He, Jesus uh, came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of how many nations? All the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I am with you. Always even to the end of the age. It begins by saying, Jesus saying, I have all authority. God has given me all authority. He says, all authority has been given to me. Right? Now, if you really believe that, and you're in touch with the person who has all authority, that's going to give you a little confidence, right? And then, the mission for 20 centuries now is to go into all nations, right? And it says, baptize them and teach them and all this. And then he says, I am with you. I am with you to the oh, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Right? So he believed that. Look at Acts one eight. Acts chapter one verse eight. This is Jesus again. Some of his last words before he ascended. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Power to show off to your friends? No. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to Ireland. On their ancient maps, what is the remotest part of the earth? The island passed the end of the Roman Empire, and then there's a great sea. They didn't know there was anything past the sea. That, for them, was the remotest part of the earth. (laughs) At least in the West. And so, this is what Jesus said to His church. And you know what? That first generation, that second generation, that third generation, they were faithful. You know what Peter did? He preached in Joppa. He preached around in this region of Judea. And then Philip went to where? Samaria, right? And then the Apostle Paul, he travels all over the place. He goes to uh, what we today call Turkey, right? These different regions of Turkey. He goes to Greece. And he ends up in Italy, in Rome. Uh, some, I have this one guy who, in the second century, travels to India, and there's already Christians there, in India, right? Because Christians are doing this. We're faithful to this, right? And then uh, there are people, Christianity reaches what's modern, modern day France, it reaches there in the second century. It's flourishing way out in France in the, in the second century. In Britain, it's already out there. I'm not sure exactly what century, but Patrick is there in the 400s. He says his dad was a deacon, and his grandfather was a priest. All on that island of Britain, right? And so Christianity had already been spreading all over the place. But then, for whatever reason, it stopped short of Ireland in the West. And there's two, two, there, there are these people groups, and, and you, start, you start getting a domesticated mindset. You start getting this mindset, and say, well, they're not, they're not Americans. You know? 
I mean, these people, they don't understand, you know, civilization like we do. They don't have, they don't have our technology, right? Well, their equivalent would have been, these people aren't Romans. You know, these are barbaric tribes. The Saxons? I'm not preaching to the Saxons. It's a people group that came into England at the time when Patrick was living there. The Picts, the people living up in the northern region of England that we now call Scotland. You know what the Romans did with the Picts? It's P-I-C-T-S. The Romans marched their soldiers all the way through Britannia. And they got all the way to north until they ran into this crazy uh, tribal people called the Picts. And, and they, they tried to fight them. And they couldn't beat them. So you know what they did? An emperor named Hadrian, they built a wall the whole length of England and just cut off the north. He said, this, this wall, this is where the Roman Empire ends right here. Nobody needs to go up there. And I don't think the Picts minded. They didn't want the Romans anyhow. Right? But we're not going to preach to the Picts. We're not going to go preach to the Saxons, the Irish. Forget the Irish. Right? And there, there had been a mindset in place by the time of Patrick where Christianity goes with the Roman Empire. It doesn't go with the barbarians who are worshipping these idols. That was a mindset that had slowly crept in. And Patrick, reading scriptures like what we're reading today, reads, it says all nations. It says remotest part of the earth. The people who don't need Christ are the people who have Christ. Right? Well, I mean, we do need Christ too, but like we already got him. So what about the people who haven't heard is what Patrick said. And so he goes, especially naked people, right? We've got to preach to them. Put some clothes on. So at 47 years old, he finally gets in a boat with a few courageous young people that accompany him. And he lands in Ireland. And do you know, do you know what uh, the Irish are impressed with more than anything else? Courage. Courage. They can look in your eyes and see if you're afraid. This is the mindset of Patrick in his own words. Every day... I am ready to be murdered, betrayed, enslaved. He said, I'm ready to be murdered, betrayed, enslaved. I am not afraid of any of these things because of the promises of heaven, for I have put myself in the hands of God Almighty. So the God of heaven has my back, right? And this is the one thing Patrick had solid, right? I'm not saying, I don't mean to say Patrick's perfect. He never made any mistakes. I'm not going that route with this whole thing. Okay, But what I am saying is that he had one thing solid, and that is there was no doubt in his mind that God had saved him, that God had rescued him, and that God had called him to go back. Right? Now think about this for a second. If you're absolutely convinced God has called you to do something, you can have confidence in that, can't you? You can say, well, God's not going to let me die the first day I'm here. I've been trying to go for 25 years. Now I'm 47. I'm finally here. I've got a little crew of other missionaries. He knows Gaelic, the language of the people. And he, and he walks up. And he finds somebody there and he says, let me talk to the king. Because every, every little turf has its own ruler, right? Let me talk to the king. Who's the king here? He says, all right, I'll show you the king. So he goes and he starts preaching. You know, now you think they're just going to let him talk to the to the chief? No, there's probably going to be 
guards there, probably, you know, I mean, these people get assassinated, right? So there's, there's probably security, some sort of rudimentary security. Patrick's got to get through all this. We don't have an account of exactly what happened, but I imagine it was something like this. I've come to give your king good news from a mighty king, a king more powerful than the Romans. I've come from a faraway land, and I want to give your king good news. I think that would sell, wouldn't it? Right? And so they, they, the soldiers probably, you know, the guards probably try to, like, push him back, you know, like, we don't really know you. Patrick can look him in the eyes with courage and say, I am not afraid. My king is more powerful. I'm from a faraway place. I have good news. Let me speak to him. And he gets an audience with one after the other of these kings. Like I told you, there's hundreds of these guys. And, uh, you know, we don't know what he said, but I bet it was something like, I want to tell you about a king whom God has exalted above all principalities and rulers and might and dominion. Not only in this age, but that which is to come. Why would that be welcome news for the Irish? Because they're terrified of their demon gods. Christ can give you protection from your demons. If you come to Christ, these gods aren't going to... You don't have to offer sacrifice your, your babies... You don't have to offer your babies. You don't have to offer adults. You can stop that. Christ will protect you from these other gods. God has put him above these other gods. You don't need to worship them anymore. The true God doesn't hate you. How about that? Whoa. The true God is a father who loves you. There's a radical message that would have blown their minds. And they, say, they probably said to him, how do you even know this is true, Patrick? Let me tell you what God did for me in my life. I had been a slave. I had been captured by your own people. And he could tell the name of the guy who captured him. And I was a slave for six years, all night. And God rescued me. He brought me back, and then he gave me a calling to come back to you, to share this love, to share this good news. Right? At that point, the chief is going to say something like, Either you're the most courageous person I've ever met or a complete idiot because if you're a runaway slave, you're dead, buddy. Right? Patrick says, I'm not afraid. God is going to protect me. Right? Whatever he said, I don't know. This is my best guess. Whatever he said, they bought it. They believed in it. And he's incredibly successful. Here's another... Uh, quote that I found particularly helpful in light of uh, Tuesday and uh, how St. Patrick's Day is typically celebrated in, the, in our country. Patrick's peace <clears throat> was no sham. It issued from his person like a fragrance. And in a damp land where people lived and slept in close proximity, everyone would have known sooner or later if Patrick's sleep was brought on by the goddess of intoxication or broken by the goddesses of fear, Patrick slept soundly and soberly. Patrick can fall asleep without getting drunk. Now, to, to you or me, it's like, oh, wow. To, to the Irish who are terrified of other Irish people coming to, to kill them, or terrified of the gods who are these shape-shifting, nasty, human-sacrifice devourers, 
Being able to sleep through the night is a big deal. And Patrick can do it without getting drunk. Right? A little different than the Patrick that we're all more used to today, right? And he ends up, he ends up converting thousands. He spends 30 years in Ireland, never even tries to go home. He, he decides that he wants to die in Ireland, that he would give his whole life to this cause because it's what God's called him to do and that these people need the gospel, they need Christ. So he spends 30 years there and he's wildly successful. That doesn't mean he didn't have any suffering. It didn't mean 30 years, like every single time you talk to somebody, they're like, I believe, right? That's not what happens in real life, is it? He talks about one time that he got mugged. He got robbed of all his money. And that he'd gotten beaten up and thrown in chains. Right? And eventually he got out of it. Another time, he was taken captive for 60 days. But he did not quit. He did not give up on his faith. And he kept, he kept the mission clear. The... Uh, his, his, his mission is wildly successful. I said that before. What I mean by that is that within decades of Patrick's death, the majority of Ireland becomes Christian. And there's just nothing like it in the history of Christianity as far as the speed of conversion. The Roman Empire takes hundreds and hundreds of years. You know what I mean? This is like one lifetime. Later on, uh, the Irish... Get, uh, they, they raise up their own missionaries. A guy named Columba is inspired by Patrick, and he decides, I'm going to go preach to those Picts up in the north. He brings Christianity to the Picts. Then another Irishman named Aidan likewise brought Christianity to those Saxons that had invaded England and were so worshiping the trees and the rivers and these idols, right? And uh, monasteries creep up in Ireland, and that's where a lot of the manuscripts of civilization get uh, copied and preserved. And they send missionaries back east to Europe. As Europe descends into the Dark Ages, Irish missionaries are coming over, looking at Patrick's example, saying, hey, these people need Christ, let's go, rather than let's build our empire here really big. Um, so what does this mean for you? Well, do you discount people because of how they look? Do you automatically write off the gangster wannabe in the riding, low-riding pants? Say, oh, he's not, he doesn't, I can't talk to that, I can't talk to him. You know, do you assume that the leather-clad biker doesn't care with all his tattoos? Do you ignore older folks? Do you prejudge the businessman in the power tie and the suit? So he doesn't, he's not interested in Christ. I'm not talking to him. What about the girl with the facial piercings and the tattoos? What about openly gay people? What about the homeless, disabled, Jewish, Catholic, atheists, Spanish-speaking? What about Muslims? Do we, do we do this? I think, I think it's our natural tendency to be like, oh, they, they wouldn't want to know. They're not, they're not interested. I can't talk to... We need to learn something here from somebody who looked at a bunch of Irish people before Christ in their warrior state and said, they need the gospel, I'm going to go.
He didn't write off the Irish savages. I mean, we have, we have a major opportunity, you and I. Did you know that? This only comes around once a year, where everybody in our region feels a weird sense like they should go to church one day. Did you know that? Resurrection Sunday, right? Easter. People, for whatever reason, good or bad, they want to go. So I think we have a huge opportunity that's coming up April 5th to invite people, like, like Bill shared last week, that we can invite people, that we can say to them, even if, even if they look different than us or if they act different than us, we can say to them, hey, why don't you come to church on Easter? I know a good one. <laughs> you know? And uh, because this, this message is not for just like one people group, it's for everyone. I love the scripture, and I'll just close with this, in Revelation 5, 9, and 10, where there's a song in heaven, and they say, they're singing to the Lamb, and they say, worthy are you to take the book and open its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Jesus died for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and you have made him to be a kingdom of priests, and they will reign upon the earth. That's God's vision for the future, that there would be people from every kind of group that would get the call, that would get the invitation, and that would be there for the marriage supper of the Lamb in the last day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this uh, example, this inspiration. I pray that you help us to reach out beyond our own borders, our own limited viewpoints. Father, give us a heart for the lost. Help us to be the kind of people that take your son seriously when he says to go into all nations. And Father, America is a melting pot and there are so many people from so many backgrounds right in our neighborhoods, right here at home. Help us not to uh, dismiss people, but help us to speak to them, Father. And help us to have a, a confidence. Give us a confidence, Father, that... You are the true God, that your Son has died for our sins, that salvation is available, and that these other false gods and these other substitutes that people fill their lives with thinking they're going to satisfy, that doesn't work, Father. We know that. Help us to speak this message to others. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, thanks for taking the time to listen to that. I'd be interested in your comments, and if this was radically different than you thought, who St. Patrick was, or if you have more information to add. Either way, please visit restitutio.org and add your voice to the conversation. You can click on the podcast tab and find podcast number 76, The Real St. Patrick, and leave a remark there. Also, if you'd like to do more research on St. Patrick, you might want to look into one or more of the following books First off, Thomas Cahill, How the Irish Saved Civilization, which talks about Patrick, but also a lot with the Irish monks after him. Let Me Die in Ireland by David Bersow, a phenomenal, very accessible, easy read where Bersow dramatizes a biography of Patrick. Although it's, it's a bit speculative, it's pretty good. And then, of course, the Confessio by St. Patrick himself, where he recounts some of his own historical journeyings and thoughts. So check those out if you're interested in the real St. Patrick as opposed to the mythical one. 
Also, I just wanted to briefly read out a comment we received from Josh on Offscript episode 24, Worshipping Money. We've been working through each Sunday a different idol from Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, in our discussion. That's with Dan Fitzsimmons and Rose Ryder on the episode about worshiping money and greed. Josh says, that was an awesome and humbling reminder of how to vanquish the beast. I've spent so much time homeless and bathing in parks as a teen. It's not a hard fight. Thanks again. Well, thanks, Josh, for writing in, and I appreciate your perspective. It's easy for us to universalize our own experience, thinking that everyone had the same childhood that we had. Some people had really rough childhoods. Some people had really easy childhoods. Some people were abused, and some people were doted over too much. So regardless of what happened there, the scriptures are a compass that can give us true north so that we can assess ourselves over against a reliable standard. So thanks for writing in. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do that in your podcast app on your phone or your tablet. And just search for my name, Sean Finnegan, or for Restitutio, and you'll be able to find this podcast, and then it will download automatically to whatever kind of phone or tablet that you have. And stay tuned for another Offscript episode coming up this Sunday called Worshipping Power, which will be a really interesting analysis of how we get so wrapped up in exerting our influence over others, especially when it comes to social justice or political causes. So take a listen to that this Sunday, and remember, my friend, the truth has nothing to fear.